Hello and welcome back to How To with the Communications Clinic. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look into the world of publishing and discuss how to turn an idea into a best-selling book. So who better to speak with than Patricia Deavy, publisher at Penguin Ireland. Patricia, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me. You probably hear this all the time. Everybody thinks they have a book in them, but do they really? Well, everybody has a story in them. I think that's undoubtedly the case. And everybody's story deserves a hearing. Whether necessarily every story is going to be something that should go between covers and would sell to the wider public is a different thing. But that doesn't mean it's not valuable. So I I hesitate to say that not everybody has a book in them because it sounds slightly dismissive. Everybody has their own book in them. But when you're talking about publishing books, maybe not everybody. (laughs) As a publisher, but as, as an avid consumer of books, when you're reading a submission, are you looking for a critical success or are you more excited about what you think would be a bestseller? The the first thing you're looking for is to be moved and excited. Now, sometimes you read something and you're moved and excited and then you have to cop yourself on and going, this is, I'm really enjoying this, but realistically, where is this going to fit in? Is it going to sell? Would it be a responsible decision for me in terms of wearing my Penguin Random House hat and wearing my hat as being responsible to an author to take this on? Because it could be something. In fact, during the week, I was in an editorial discussion with colleagues about a project one of them was considering. And a lot of us really loved it, but we ended up concluding it kind of fell between stools. It it felt like the kind of thing that the person writing it and the way she was targeting the material was for 20 and 30 somethings. But the actual idea was something that would appeal more to an older age group. And we just thought we couldn't make the two things come together. It just wasn't going to work. Mm. And that can happen. So your first thing is to be excited or moved or gripped by either the idea or the writing or ideally all of the above. But then you have to kind of move out of the subjective response and start thinking in a very objective way about who's going to read this? That's your first question. Who's going to read it? And then how am I going to publish it to make sure that those people who would love it and who would get something out of it are going to know about it and are going to be moved to go and buy it and talk about it to their friends, etc. And tell me, how does it happen? How quickly do you know you're on to a winner? I'd love to say because it's kind of, you know, uh, it's a mystical thing about you read something and, you know, within seconds, you know, the hair stands up in the back of your neck. And, you know, that happens. It does happen in fairness from time to time. But usually it's a slightly more gradual thing of you're you're liking something and then you're not sure and you're back and forth. And maybe you start having conversations with colleagues and it you just gather a sense of confirming in yourself that your first instinct was right and that it's not just you um, now sometimes it is just you you're you have so much blind faith in something that you kind of are pushing it from the get-go regardless but usually it's a very collaborative process and so much about publishing is about communications and relationships and in terms of acquiring things 
it starts with communications with colleagues and internally and the relationships you've built up with colleagues in in uh, publicity and sales as well. So that as soon as you start talking about something, they're interested and, and you start a very positive and proactive conversation with them. I have to ask you then, Patricia, what what are the books that have made your hair on the back of your neck stand up? Which are the ones that have really lifted your heart as you as you were reading them initially? Oh, God, it's so hard to be put on the spot. Do you know what, Louise? I have published now, I'm 18 years in the business, I've published quite a lot of people and I think it would be very dangerous for me <laughs> to start picking out people. I can mention, um, I'll mention Liz Nugent maybe because Liz this year was published right at the start of um, lockdown. She is just such an amazing crime writer and I think it's just such a tribute to Liz's writing and her her presence as an author, that her book managed to be number ten, number 10, I was going to say number one, number one for over two months in lockdown and is just selling so brilliantly, even in the year we've had. Um, and Liz was somebody I connected with with her first uh with her first book um uh, and it was quite unusual it was it wasn't kind of really dead obvious crime but it had a, a really interesting sensibility and I really loved it and you know the happy pair author Sinead Moriarty you know Russell Carl Kelly you can see what I'm going to say I I can't be picking they're all my favorites <laughs> okay well that that's that's very sensibly diplomatic, Patricia. So let's instead talk about the, the world of publishing. Now, the world of publishing isn't, isn't one that many of us are overly familiar with. We see the book on the shelf, we can pick it up, we can smell it, we can read it, we can enjoy it, but we don't really see what goes into it up to that point. Can you th take me through the process? Okay, okay, yeah. I agree with you. I think people are a bit amazed at all the moving parts there are. Um, the first thing people think of is the, the writer at home writing their book. And then I, I don't know what people expect, but I think even first time authors are really surprised because the writing is kind of the tip of I don't want to say iceberg because that sounds a bit scary, but it's it's the tip of a of a big ton of activity that that follows so the first thing is obviously authors go into an editing process so that's to be expected um different publishers do things differently normally we would say somebody might work with me um to make sure everything's working structurally and the book is flowing the way it's meant to and all of that kind of thing but then there's almost another layer of editing that's really granular and detailed copy editing and there's a whole process of proofing and all that kind of thing after that but that's just to get the text sorted out in parallel to that there'll be a whole process of getting the cover of the book sorted out and um, authors, certainly first time authors can find that pretty surprising and and even quite quite challenging in some ways, because it's very hard to kind of translate your vision in your head and the words you've put on the page into into a visual thing. And sometimes it's it, the it's not going to be what you expect. So that can be quite a 
quite a challenging and hopefully um, stimulating process as well. Um, and it's not just it's the image on the cover. Is it going to be photographic or typographic or is it going to be an illustration? All of those kinds of things. The blurb on the back. I, fa I had a very interesting lengthy correspondence recently with one of our authors who felt that um, the blurb we wanted to put on his book was a bit um, compared it to Cecil B. DeMille. He thought it was a bit breathless and overblown. And I had to, as kindly as possible, go back to him and say, good, we want it to sound exciting. We want people to be excited about about reading it. Uh, so th so there's a lot of toing and froing around that. At the same time, you know, as or as we get through the process at a certain point, authors will start having a lot of conversations with my colleagues in the comms team. So we'll be sharing our marketing ideas with them. We'll be talking to them about publicity and publicity nowadays has so many elements to it. Author participation is huge now in publishing. It's probably more important than it's ever been both in traditional uh, media and in social media. So there will be there's a whole other job of work for authors long after they've finished working on the text of the book, working with our team on the marketing plans and the publicity plans. Then in parallel to all of that, our sales colleagues are having conversations with our fabulous booksellers like Eason's and Debray and all our independent booksellers and obviously Amazon and online sellers are really important as well. So there's a whole load of conversations going on to all of our customers about books we have coming up in six and nine months. It's that far out. Those are when the conversations happen. We share artwork with them early on, you know, the cover of the book. We share blurbs. We talk to them about our marketing plans. We share our publicity aspirations. And we may well be making introductions between booksellers and authors. And, and so they're starting to get to know each other if they haven't already met through through the trade, because the trade is wonderful. It's very intimate and everybody knows each other. So it's a it's a wonderful world from that point of view. But for first time authors, it's all new. Um, so we hold their hands through all of that. Um, and then obviously you're coming up to publicity and they start doing interviews. So we start talking about the media and bloggers and journalists and all that kind of thing. So it's it's there's a there's a heck of a lot of boxes to tick. And then apart from that, the kind of whole publishing ecosystem around supply chains like we have to be thinking about printing, stock levels, distribution, Brexit's obviously going to complicate things a little bit, but thank God we have a team who are on that, so it's all going to be fine. But it, it, publishing is a big, complex machine with tons of moving parts. And even authors very often only see an element of it until maybe the first time they start thinking about something like distribution is when they go into a local bookshop. And hopefully this never happens. But even in the best regulated uh, systems that can happen, their book isn't there or there aren't as many copies as they thought. And it's at that point they pick up the phone to us and we go, gosh, let's look into that. And usually there's a simple explanation and all that kind of thing. But you know, that's all that's all part of the equation beyond the person sitting at their keyboard, looking out at the at the shrubs, thinking of a brilliant idea. So let's talk about some of these moving parts then, Patricia, in terms of the initial contact. What's the ratio of people coming to Penguin versus Penguin going to people? Oh, that's a really good question. We get a lot of people submitting material. We get 
we take submissions straight and we also get submissions from agents. So that's obviously one thing. But a big part of publishing, too, is uh, myself and colleagues who sit around and think, talk about ideas, talk about things that are in the media, talk about people that we find interesting who are out there and initiating conversations, arranging meetings with say, I mean, journalists, I suppose, are the obvious thing or experts in different things. And we will very often have speculative conversations with people saying, you know, we really are interested in what you're doing. I wonder, is there a book in it? Have you ever thought of writing? You know, so that's a big part of it as well. I suppose it's probably about it's probably about half and half, to be honest. Yeah. And and if somebody has an idea for a book, then how, how should it be submitted? Do you look for the whole book or a chapter and outline? Uh, well, I'd make a distinction between fiction and nonfiction. So with fiction, I think the best and easiest thing for people to do is send in their full manuscript when they feel it's as polished as they can possibly make it. We can't really read work that's in draft. I think most people know that now. There was a time when people would send in material and say, this is my first draft. Can you give me advice? And, you know, publishers aren't really there for that. We want to see things when people feel I've given it everything I can give it. This is my absolute best attempt. Um, so I would say for novels, send us in the first send us in the full script and and put in a, a sort of a one page summary of what it is as well. And a cover letter saying, you know, this is who I am. This is my novel, etc. Uh, nonfiction is kind of different because I think um, very often with nonfiction, it's going to be, uh, you know, quite a complex bit of writing um, and you're probably better off doing a really detailed proposal. So maybe capture your kind of hook of the of the book in a few paragraphs, but then include a detailed outline of maybe something like five, six, seven pages that gives a sort of a chapter by chapter guide to what you hope to cover, who you hope to talk to, and maybe a sample chapter as well. I think that would be the best way for most nonfiction projects. And for those hopeful fiction writers, uh, do is there such a thing as a slush pile? Do you have do publishers generally have readers who go through these manuscripts and say yay or nay? There is such a thing as a slush pile. It's practically all online now, to be honest, Louise. So uh, there's a big kind of submissions folder, and I will put my hands up depending on pressure of work sometimes I certainly am not always as quick as I should be to get back to people about their submissions, and I'm always incredibly regretful and sorry about that but I, I do get there eventually uh, we tend to do our reading in-house we don't tend to have independent readers and in a way that's probably why we are we're not always as quick as we'd like to be but I know uh, there are some agents and publishers who use always very experienced editors uh, you know so I would say anything that's been read within publishing houses or by agents is being read by somebody experienced who's thinking about how it would perform um, so people needn't feel that their their material isn't being carefully considered 
Patricia, what's the role of the editor then? You know, what's the difference between a copy editor and a line editor? What do each do? Well, uh, a copy editor and a line editor are kind of the same thing. So they're structural editors. They're commissioning editors, which is kind of what I am as sort of as a publisher. Um, and then I also work as a structural editor with with my authors. Well, with a lot of them. And, and so structural editing is kind of the big picture stuff. So say with a novel, if... You know, you think, okay, the plot maybe needs a little bit of work or maybe, you know, the order of the plot isn't quite right or something like that. Or it needs another element to increase the tension or, you know, all those kind of big picture things. And then very often the the copy editing and line editing is down to really nitty gritty stuff like, you know, somebody it turns out is... 10 months pregnant or something like that, you know, very often they're going through now copy editors are usually incredibly clever, smart people. And very often they'll spot big structural problems that maybe have somehow eluded the, the, the structural editor. So it's very collaborative again. And, you know, it's a word I keep coming back to collaborative. It's 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 really great because, you know, you're kind of all helping each other out to, to get to the finishing line. And and talk to me then about the agent, Patricia. What what precise function does the agent have in this process? Agents are really great in between people. And in a way, they can be the they can do good cop, bad cop for everybody in a way. And they avoid. So in the first instance, they introduce uh, authors to publishers and bring somebody along and say I have somebody great or here's a great book I think it will really suit you because they know us really well and they know our taste and they know the kind of stuff we do really well and the stuff you know different sometimes different publishers see are seen to be better at one thing than another and agents will be very savvy about all of that and know who to talk to um, and they'll have a sense of personalities and who will be a fit with who all that kind of thing um, but they're working for the author and they're doing their best for the author to get them the best possible deal. And the best possible deal is a combination of being paid properly, but also the publishers they think will do the best job to publish the book. So they're very, very useful to authors in that sense, their resource. And then down the road where they're really helpful on both sides, because relationships are complicated and publishing relationships are in in lots of ways very intimate you know they're kind of like a a business friendship almost is a way of putting it and like all friendships you can have situations where there are misunderstandings or people aren't quite on the same page so um we you know a really great agent is really helpful to a publisher because we can go to them and say look we have a bit of a dilemma here I want to talk to your author about this and I'm I, I want to explain to you first why I'm having this problem and we can work out between us how to approach something. And equally, the author has the agent there who they know is totally in their corner and they can go to the agent and say, I'm not happy with this or I don't understand this or, you know, I really don't want to say to Patricia, I don't like the blurb but I don't like the blurb and can you go and talk to them? So they kind of run interference between both sides so that we can all continue to have cordial relations, hopefully. So it's always better to have one then. I mean, we do we do both and it works very well and it can be 
there can be personality factors like if you're if you don't like to if you're conscious that you're somebody who finds it incredibly awkward to raise problems with with somebody, just if you know that's your personality, you're probably really better off having an agent because it'll stop you getting kind of stressed and frustrated when when there's something happening that you're you're not fully understanding. But then some authors are more than capable of, uh, you know, having the having the tricky conversations themselves as well. And, you know, we're always happy to do that. And, you know, again, coming back to communications, a lot of what is important in publishing in every direction, internally, externally, is about managing expectations and having those kind of honest understandings all along the way of what's expected. And hopefully if we if we do that properly, we don't end up having to have too many awkward and difficult conversations. I imagine the process must get a little more complicated when there's another person added into the mix and that person being the ghostwriter. So how does it all work when you have a ghostwriter involved? Ghostwriters usually are hired by the publisher. So that means we have quite a business-like relationship with the ghostwriter and we're saying to them, we've brought you on board because this author is not in it. They have an amazing story to tell, but they're not in a position to tell it themselves. They the the whole mechanics of how to put a book together and write it is is not within their kind of skill set. But you're brilliant. That's why we have you on board. And this is these are our expectations. This is what we want you to achieve. I suppose maybe if somebody comes to us with a ghostwriter attached, that's that could be slightly more complicated because it would depend on if we already knew the ghostwriter, that would be one thing. If we didn't know them, we'd have to get to know them. We'd have to make sure we were all on the same page. But, you know, these are conversations we're used to having. So it's 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 not more complicated than than any other scenario, really. I would imagine that a good ghostwriter would have to be devoid of ego to make the process work. Is that the case? You kind of want everyone to have a bit of an ego in all of these things because, you know, you want people to be invested in doing a really good job. And ego comes into play in the sense that you might you might feel, OK, the public aren't going to know that I'm responsible for the fact that this is reading really well or that or the, some people might see my name in the credits, but most people probably won't realise but you'll take a certain level of pride in the fact that a book is well received and that it's known to people in the trade and that that you're somebody fantastic who can deliver a great book. Explain the advance then. What, how does that work in terms of, you know, book sales in, in, after publication? Well, an advance is an advance on royalties. So in other words, we're saying we're going to give you X amount of money and we're going to assume that you'll sell enough copies of your book that we'll make that back. So say, you know, it's 10, we give a 10,000 euro advance, which is quite a high advance, I might add, in case anyone thinks that's on the low end or typical. Um, and your book is going to go out and sell and it has a royalty of 10%. Well, then you can do the maths of how many copies of your book has to sell before you will have earned back the amount we give you at the outset and you then start earning, you know, proper money on top of what you were paid at the outset. So it's it's kind of like a loan or an investment that we put out up front. 
you know, we do a lot of modeling, you know, publishers have uh, financial colleagues as well who help us with making decisions. So we don't pluck numbers out of the air or anything like that. We're very much looking at your kind of book, what what part of the market, what is the market for that kind of book? Are there comparable books in your area and how many have they sold? Do we think we're going to sell in or about that amount? And then we'll talk to our sales colleagues and they'll tell us, well, we think, you know, we think the customers will take this level of this. So, you know, everything is kind of plugged into a model to work out what is a reasonable level of advance. We want to pay authors for their very hard work, but at the same time, we are a business. So it's, it's all quite rationally based, really. You hear kind of stories about huge, huge advances, usually around the time of the Frankfurt Book Fair or something like that. But the reason they are stories is because they're 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 exceptional. And very often it's for something that suddenly has captured the imagination of a number of publishers and suddenly there's competition and and that drives it. The normal day to day process of acquiring books um, is kind of more grounded than that, I would say. Patricia, you mentioned earlier the publicity tour and it, it used to be said that you had four days to promote the book, the Late Late Show on the Friday, the Sunday Times and the various stops within. Is that still the case? Is it still as rigorous as that? It kind of depends on the book, to be honest, Louise. You know, there, there are just so many different models. And as I kind of said earlier, you know, authors, there are so many more demands on authors in some ways in terms of, you know, there's like, for instance, you know, a novelist could be doing a blog tour for a month, which is kind of not obvious to, you know, might be dead obvious to the public. They're not seeing them everywhere unless they happen to be reading an awful lot of blogs. Um. So, for instance, uh, I mentioned Liz Nugent earlier, Liz's paper, her paperback is out in January and she has, I think, a blog. um, She has a blog tour. She has something every day for a month, practically, um, when in January, when she's when she's doing that. And there are certain kind of books, definitely, yeah, that we love to get them onto the Late Late Show or we love to get them onto uh, Ryan Tuberty or Miriam or, you know, News Talk, Matt Cooper, or, you know, all the different. There there's some fantastic, you know, shows out there that really are very open and hospitable for authors, depending on the subject matter, you know. So, again, Champagne Football, obviously an awful lot of people who have an interest in sports or business or whatever were really interested in that fiction, different again. Um, so it just depends and and recently, I obviously twenty twenty has um, ruled out the book signings and the meet and greet. Has that impacted as you've seen? Well, it's just made us. I mean, honestly, my comms colleagues all year, all the all the people doing marketing and publicity, my God, they will have earned their Christmas dinner this year because they had to pivot so so quickly in early March from all of the plans we had of. Yeah, all of that kind of traditional activity. And they, they've just done an amazing job of coming up with really creative ways. And I, I'd like to mention festivals as well, of all these really creative ways of doing things online. And actually, I think it's opened up a lot of our thinking about how to do things now and actually how to create more intimate connections between authors and readers in a way that we mightn't have considered before. Um, so you might have... 
smaller online events, but where people have a real sense of engagement with the author in a way they mightn't have had even going to a a reading in a library. You know, I wouldn't rule anything in or out. I think we're just opening up the channels all the time. So let's talk about the writer then, Patricia, to to create a, a work of fiction. There's undoubtedly a need for a vivid imagination, but also the ability to write well. In your experience, can one exist without the other and still create a success? That's such an interesting question. Yeah, I think I think the thing is you, you need a vivid imagination, but a vivid imagination on its own, unless you can find a way of capturing it on the page, won't be quite enough. I think every every editor has had either the person with the brilliant imagination who just can't write in as vivid a way as they as they can come up with a story. And you can fix a lot about writing, but but you can't fix everything. And equally, you cannot fix somebody who's a beautiful, elegant writer, but who just doesn't have a story or who can't come up with it with a clever story. So it's 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 a kind of a sweet spot between the two. And of course, it's more than a sweet spot because ideally you have both to a, a very a high level of of accomplishment. How do you tell somebody that bad news then? How how far along have you gone into a process where you've had to nix it and tell them this isn't going to make a book? Well, you see, we wouldn't. That's why the process of acquiring is so important, because it would be very odd to go down the road, particularly when it comes to fiction. I I can't really imagine a situation where we would have a novel that we decide well down the road isn't working. I think we'd be fairly invested before we'd be agreeing to publish it in the first place. I can think of maybe one instance in the guts of 20 years that we're up and running. And it was a lesson we learned early on where we kind of commissioned a novel. And it was a real realisation that somebody is either a, a, a novelist or they're not. You can't turn somebody who's brilliant at writing in one field into a storyteller if they're not a natural storyteller. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, it's with nonfiction, it's different because sometimes we get people who are amazing experts in their field, but where their expertise lies is not writing. And if they're working on it themselves and it's not quite coming together at that point, very often we will want to bring somebody in to help them. Um, and usually there's a there's a way of having the conversation. It's again, it's the 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 thing of managing expectations and being honest and, and not beating around the bush too, and um, being really straight about what's going on and, and why it's not quite working. And actually, that's something I was going to ask you. Do you personally feel a responsibility to be very honest so that a writer or a, a hopeful writer rather doesn't continue along a route that you know they ultimately won't be successful on? Well, it's just not fair to anybody not to be. I wouldn't be let allow somebody continue the wrong road if I know it's the wrong road because as publishers we're investing a huge amount in everything we do so it just isn't a, a valuable use of of us of our time and uh, to to have somebody off doing something that isn't working we have a kind of responsibility to serve the author that we've that we've acquired and who expects care from us you know over the years a couple of times we have walked away from projects and just 
drawn a line under the relationship and agreed that it just hasn't quite worked out. Um, and and usually we can do that in a fairly civilised way. I compared it to a friendship and we all also know in our lives moments when relationships have kind of come to a natural conclusion. It's never pleasant, but it's sometimes necessary, I guess. So Patricia, if somebody is approaching this process with, with the aspirations of becoming a published author, what are your key tips? Think hard, focus. It's like anything that's complicated and challenging and difficult. You you just have to apply yourself. There is that thing, I think, that sometimes people from the outside think of, wouldn't it be marvellous to be an author with a capital A? But being an author and published is just a lot of incremental work all along the way from having your idea to testing your idea and teasing it out to applying your bottom to the chair and applying your fingers to the keyboard and giving it the time and drafting and redrafting and engaging with the process of editing and and being open and actively engaged all along to all the different things you're hearing from your agent or your publisher or whatever. So I think the advice is in a way, and it sounds very banal, it's to treat it as your job and to approach it as a in a very professional way and to realise it is going to be hard work. Uh, but the upside of seeing your book in the bookshops in the first place is amazing. And ideally seeing it sell and seeing, you know, seeing somebody on the Lewis reading your book or seeing it on the you know, on the on the bus between, you know, Dublin and Limerick or whatever, you know, that's always a kick, I think, for authors. Um, so there's there's amazing upsides to to writing, but ultimately it's there's a lot of application involved. So the romance and the magic and the glamour of it is wonderful. And there is that side of it. But like all of the things where there's a lot of romance and glamour on the surface, there's a hell of a lot of hard work in the background. Patricia, thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with another how-to very soon.